Engineers who want to add search to their application usually deploy Elasticsearch or write their own search engine that uses TF-IDF. That stands for Term Frequency Inverted Document Frequency. These solutions work well for large documents, but they're less effective for large volumes of small records, which is how many modern web and mobile applications today are structured. In today's show, Julian Lemoyne discusses how his company, Algolia, thinks about search. Algolia is a search-as-a-service company that gives developers an easier way to search on their websites and mobile applications. Full disclosure, Algolia is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Now, before we get to this episode, a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. You can sign up for Software Weekly or join our Slack community at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, Software Engineering Daily is looking for additional sponsors. If you are interested in advertising on the show, send me a message at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com. Julian Lemoyan is the CTO and co-founder of Algolia, a search-as-a-service company. Julian, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. So search engines have been around for a long time. What are the unsolved problems in search? Yes, they are there for, for quite some time, but actually the usage has changed a lot. Um, Google has pushed a lot uh, the bar in terms of quality, in terms of experience, and users want to have the same in all their applications, all their websites. And actually, that's something which is pretty complex to, to do. And, and it takes a lot of time to, um, uh, to, to reach the same bar than Google has set. Absolutely. So if I'm a developer and I have an app, that app has lots of small records, like a database of songs or news articles or comments, if I want to implement a search engine on top of that data, what are my options? You have mainly three options. Um, the first one is to use your database. Uh, there is a, a keyword like uh, that you can use to, to perform a query, but it's actually um, pretty slow and the quality in terms of relevance is not perfect. Uh, so most of the people prefer to move to another option, which is to use an open source software and do everything based on, on this technology. Um, but it takes a lot of time to, uh, to tune the engine, to have a good relevance. And, and actually, when you make a change, you don't even know if it's, uh, if it's a better search or, or a worse one that you will have as a results. So the third option is to use a, a SaaS solution like Algolia. Uh, to remove the pain of hosting and, and to rely on experts to help you deliver a good search. And since mostly developers listen to this podcast, um, you know, they're thinking about, you know, probably the option two or three. If search is really important, you know, yeah. probably they're, the first thing that they'll think about is, well, you know, I'll go with some open source solution like Elasticsearch. Um, so what are the advantages and disadvantages of going with an open source solution like that? So Elasticsearch or Solar are very, very good software, but they, are, they were designed to solve a lot of different problems, uh, like indexing of a very huge amount of logs 
or on the other side, a, a user-facing search in your app or, or website. Um, on our case, we are focused on only delivering a very good user search. So if you want to do that with Elasticsearch or any open source software, you will need to redo everything like, oh, oh should I handle typos? Or should I handle instant search? Or, or can I manage to have good performances and so on? So just as a thing you will have in in few minutes or few hours with us would take you months to accomplish with with Elasticsearch or an open source software. So that's mainly the time you will get and all the expertise of our experts. So you will do uh, you will have more time to do crazy things if you use uh, a SaaS solution. So. Assuming we're going with a SaaS solution and like Algolia is obviously an example of that. And, um, you know, just to get it out of the way and, you know, people probably know this, but like Algolia is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. So, uh, you know, this is I don't want people to have the interpretation that this is like content marketing or anything. But, uh, you know, so I really want to dive into the the engineering behind Algolia. And uh, one thing that, that we should discuss is like, how search rankings are are created, um, and this is pretty interesting because, like, in a typical search engine, this is often done with with what's called TFIDF. So, could you describe what what TFIDF is and how that is used to rank search results in a typical search engine? Yes. So, TFIDF is one part of uh, the ranking formula you have in a search engine. So, the ranking is computed with a big formula that takes into account different criteria. All of them are mixed in, in this formula. And TFIDF is, is a pretty big part of it. It's basically to take into account the popularity of a word on, on the document versus on the entire dataset. So it was really good for like indexing um, big articles or web pages because you have a lot of words which are uh, frequent, but it can be a stop word. So it's, it was very important to manage to have a good quality and promote the, the content with the most relevant words and, and remove in your queries a word with uh, like the stop words with a lot of frequency. So what are the shortcomings of TFIDF? Like, why doesn't it work for things that are, for data sets that have smaller things? So mainly because we have structures. So instead of having a huge amount of text, you have a lot of things that you can use to uh, for your relevance. And the second thing is that if you have, for example, a list of products or a list of usernames, it's not because the brand Apple is frequent that it gives a good information about the relevance of the specific article. You need to have different ways to view and compute your relevance. So the structure is really important. If it is a title or the brand name or the description of the product, for example, it's really different. And, and we take into account this information. And... Um, and you have a lot of different structure uh, that you can use. Like, is there any typos in um, in the query to match this information? Um, is it a prefix or not? As you are typing um, uh, your query, uh, if it's an exact word, it's better than a prefix and so on. So there is a lot of different criteria you can use to compute a good textual relevance. And actually, on those very structured data, TFIDF is not the best uh, element you can use. 
Right. So, for example, let's say I'm on an e-commerce website and it has a search engine that is not built with TFIDF ranking. What is a way that we could rank the products on this website if somebody searches? So you will have two parts mainly. Uh, you will have the textual relevance and the business relevance. So what we usually uh, apply when you don't have TFIDF is to apply textual relevance. And if there is content with the same textual relevance, you will move to the uh, to the business relevance, like the number of page view or the number of time a product was put in a cart. And for the textual relevance part, you can mix all the different information we have just um, mentioned, like the is it a prefix or not, the number of typos, the specific attribute that matched. And you can use all those data in um, an n-dimensional sort, also known as type working, instead of a big formula, which gives you more control and, um, and uh, let you measure the impact of a change versus a big formula that if you change a boost, uh, like a, a, a two by a three in your big formula, you can just completely change the result for all queries. If you just change the order of like typos will be applied after uh, the attribute that matched, you exactly know what you are doing and you can exactly control what, what will be the impact on queries. Perfect. So at this point, we should talk about what Algolia is. Could you explain how the product works? Yes, sure. So Algolia is a nested search uh, platform with unique differentiator on the important aspect of user-facing search. Um, we, are, uh, we have developed uh, an engine from scratch with performance and relevance in mind. So we, we already discussed a bit about um, relevance, but performance is also something that matters a lot for us. We try to track and optimize every milliseconds. Um, but we are also a developer uh, focus company. We are an API company. Uh, we, we provide API client in most important programming languages. Uh, and our support is done by engineers, uh, by the product developers. And you, you know that you have someone that knows the product. Okay, great. So if I'm a company using Algolia, do you copy my entire database or do you like, what are, what are the phases? Like if I, once I give you my, first of all, like what data do I have to give you? What are the steps to, to uh, indexing that data? And, and then at what point can I embed Algolia into my website? So you only need to send the subset you want to search for. So okay. it's usually if you are on e-commerce website, it's like, uh, the product description, the title, the brand, so all the things you want to use for search, plus the information you want to use for the ranking. So it can be the direct information or it can be just a computation to obfuscate a bit the data. So you select what you want to send. You have the complete control. It's an API, so you control exactly what you want to send to, to our API. And usually you have a first update of the data, so you push all your database, and then you push only the updates, so the incremental modification of your data. Got it. Okay. So with all of this data, uh, obviously there's some infrastructure requirements, uh, you know, because all the customers have their data indexed, um, and so that's a lot of data. So 
talking about Algolia's infrastructure from day one, yep. you had to decide whether you were going to go with a cloud service provider or if you were going to run Algolia on your own bare metal hardware. And this is a question that many companies have, whether they're yeah. a SaaS company or an ad tech company or an e-commerce company. Um, and most, in fact, most of the interviews that we've done on Software Engineering Daily, I feel like people have chosen to go with the cloud service provider rather than bare metal. Um, so it's quite an interesting decision that you did end up going with bare metal. So how how were you framing this decision? How were you thinking about the decision between going with a cloud provider and bare metal? Yeah, that's a big choice. Um, so decision depends on the context always. In our case, um, we care a lot about performances. It means the hardware we use today in terms of CPU, in terms of SSD, are not available on cloud provider. We try to always get the best. So basically, if we wanted to be uh, an optimizer service at milliseconds level, it means no one should be able to have a better CPU than the one we have. So Basically, it means we need to, to be bare metal. We don't have any other options. So that was the first um, direction that brings some complexity on the table because you don't have all the high, um, like uh, the, the available zones of cloud providers. So you need to build more things yourself to be highly available. But one of the very good um, uh, consequences of being bare metal is that the price are very, very... Um, uh, low compared to what you could get on a, on a cloud provider. So it allows us to provide very competitive pricing um, with all the, the high availability uh, layer we have built on top of bare metal hardware. Right. And Algolia ultimately went with bare metal hardware because, uh, as I read in this blog post about Algolia, the, you guys consider your business to be linked to hardware. But I think of Algolia as essentially a software company. I mean, it's a software as a service. So explain how your business is tightly linked to hardware. So we sell a service which is based on hardware plus software. For sure, most of our time is to develop the software. And the software is a big part of the optimization, all the data structure we compute, all the algorithm we have that we optimize at the milliseconds level. But those algorithms, this software run on hardware. So if you can take the same software and just get like 30% better performance because you have a better hardware, you need to optimize both. We, we don't just optimize one thing. And actually, we go even further. We even optimize like the network layer. We optimize the DNS. We really see the big picture of the search. And we try to provide you something that you cannot do uh, if, if you try to do it yourself. You cannot optimize all those layers. You will just optimize like the hardware or, or the software, but you won't be able to optimize all those layers. When you choose to run on bare metal, the question of availability becomes more interesting. High availability is much harder to maintain than if you go with something like AWS, I, I think at least. Uh, you know, AWS, you can set up infrastructure hooks to kind of take care of these problems. You can bring these problems into the software layer. Um, but maybe, maybe that's incorrect. Maybe because you're managing your own infrastructure, actually availability becomes easier in some sense. So 
How do you design high availability infrastructure on bare metal? Yeah, that, that's exactly true. It's uh, it's uh, easier to get high availability in a cloud provider because you have a lot of things that are automatically provided, like a machine in different availability zone, a load balancer between them and so on. But since day one, we wanted to do better than what cloud provider can propose. Um, for example, we try to be on three different providers with three different autonomous systems, two different DNS providers. So we try to have a very high layer of redundancy. Uh, of course, it was not done at day one uh, because it's a very long road to build all those um, layers of high availability. And the first one was the software. And in the software, we need to replicate the data to be highly available. It, we, we cannot just send the data on one bare metal machines and, and just um, think the machine will never be uh, done. Actually, we have a lot of downtime on our machines. It's, it's just the hardware. Um, so we replicate a lot of the data between machines and we have a factor three replication and each time you have an API call, we replicate it on three different machines, uh, three different hardwares, and later on, on different providers, different autonomous systems. Great. And Algolia maintains an architectural split between the indexing and the actual searches. For listeners who are not familiar with search and how search works, Explain these two aspects of building a search engine, like the indexing process versus the actual search process. Explain why it's useful to divide these two aspects of search. Sure. So one of the things with search engine is that it's very intensive in terms of CPU, it's very intensive in terms of disk, and it's very intensive in terms of memory. That's why the hardware is important. One of the things which is really difficult is that most of the time you have a lot of indexing operation. Those indexing operations require memory and disk. And for your search queries, you require memory and disk. So you have a competition between both. And it's pretty common for, for people that operate a search engine at one point to have indexing that impacts the performance of search, which is pretty bad. And it's something that everyone tries to avoid. So we have developed two things to, to work on that. One of these, uh, the first thing we have done is to split the two processes. We have one indexing process and a search process, which is two different um, processes on the operating system. So we can have priorities, different priorities in terms of CPU. And what we do to avoid the competition for disk is to put all the data in memory committed on SSD so that the search query will come with a high priority in terms of CPU and won't perform any disk operation. So we never have any impact of indexing um, on the search query. Uh, so that's that's a pretty big thing for people to just don't have to care about indexing and search. Talk more about the indexing and search process for an individual user. Like, could you walk through an example in in this e-commerce model, for example? Like, if I'm an e-commerce person, I've, I've got an e-commerce company. I want to onboard with Algolia. You guys need to index my database of search of things to be searched that I'm providing to you, and then you also need to serve searches across that data. Can you describe the indexing? and the search uh, model for how you are hosting this data on, on your infrastructure? Sure. 
So the first thing we will have is an API call to write some data. So it's an indexing operation. It will arrive on our web server. The web server will commit the operation on disk and will give an ID to the users. So we commit everything on disk, but the user just have an ID. So it will be able to follow the status of the operation. Then the builder will do a consensus between the machines. So the machines will agree between them for unique QID, which is very important to, to be sure all machines will apply the, the indexing operation exactly in the same order. So after that, all machines have the same ID. They all process the indexing operation in parallel, and we commit the data on disk. When data are committed on disk, we inform the web server that the data are changed, and the query can come on the new data. So you will have always like all data for the current processing queries plus new queries coming on the new data. And when there is no more old queries, we just erase the, the old data from disk. Okay, uh, got it. So could you help me understand the multi-tenancy model? Like it, it, does each user of Algolia, does each site that has Algolia search hosted, do they have a dedicated search server? So actually not. We have a mix of multi-tenancy and dedicated infrastructure. So most of our users are on the multi-tenancy uh, infrastructure. So it means we have a bare metal machines with our software and we have several users on it. Um, we have uh, different API keys, different folders for those users so they cannot fetch the data of other users. But we don't have like one virtual machine per users. It's really a multi-tenant setup. Then we have our uh, biggest use cases where the needs are more important than one machines. So in this case, the multi-tenant setup does not have any, um, any advantages. So we move to a dedicated infrastructure for those users. Interesting. So in order to maintain this high availability philosophy, I think testing is really important. And there's a post on StackShare where you discussed this some. You mentioned some probes that you've set up on Google App Engine. And these probes are constantly indexing and querying your cluster. Could you describe this testing feature in more detail and describe how it stress tests your stack and how it uncovers problems? Sure. So we, we started with App Engines. Then we moved to more um, distribution of the probe worldwide. So we, we currently have probe uh, spread all around the world. All those probes target each of our clusters and each cluster received a bunch of indexing search operations per second which means we always try the API and we'll always measure the performance of indexing of search, the availability of, uh, of the API to be sure it's always work as expected and on all the different clusters we have worldwide. So we have all those probes that target all our different clusters just to ensure that it's just working well. Okay, and you've also mentioned the the chaos monkey testing strategy, which Netflix advocates, and this is a philosophy around stress testing. It basically says you know you should your system should be able to handle these chaotic random uh, tests as if a monkey was just banging on a keyboard against your infrastructure. Um, 
I'd love more color around this philosophy and maybe if you have any other philosophies around automatic stress testing that you could discuss. Yes, yeah, so the cow monkey testing was pretty important for us, especially to test the, the, all the impact of network because the network can break at any moment between the machines and we have a split brain basically every day. So we need to be really, really um, reliable on this thing. Uh, we lose part of our infrastructure pretty often. So it needs to be really good in terms of consistency. Using this approach is really good to test all the different uh, parts of your code that can break because of a network outage or a network slowdown or anything. So it was really key to test this aspect of the product, like the distributed comp computing aspect of it, which is pretty complex to, to just test with a unit test. You cannot just test all the possible uh, failure um, and this one is really important for us um, then you have all the unit tests functional tests all I would say uh, classical stress tests we have on, on our infrastructure so each time we have a commit we apply a bunch of unit tests on all the different features of, of the product plus a huge uh, stress test that will perform a lot of API call and check that everything is consistent and we have no regression. Um, so it's more classical, but it's needed because the more features, the more different combination you can have between your, your different options and the more potential regression you can have. So regression is something we try to test as much as possible to avoid anything to happen. You touched on this idea that in a distributed system, it's basically impossible to test everything. And I think this is really interesting because, uh, you know, early on in, in university, in my school, I remember we, we were talking about, we, I took some software engineering class and we had to write unit tests around stuff. And, uh, and then later on, you know, I started learning about distributed systems and I was like, well, you literally cannot test every possible thing in a distributed system. So, uh, how how do how can developers get used to this? How can developers build a system that uh, is well tested and yet uh, the the developer admits this system is impossible to thoroughly test? I mean, what are the strategies for testing a distributed system? It's a very good question. I'm not sure there is a perfect answer to that. Um, on our case, what we have tried to to do is to minimize. Um, like the consensus part, the part which is very complex, requires a lot of communication between machines and can break in basically every line of code we have in this section. And every line could could uh, could uh, deliver a different result if there is an outage. So if you minimize this section and try to just um, have it as solid as possible in production on Android of server, dozens of providers the more load you have on your machines, the more uh, bugs you will find. And um, and uh, even with a monkey testing approach, even with unit tests, even with functional tests, we were not able to just detect all the potential bugs. We have some bugs that we discovered in production and we have fixed later on. So I think if you have a small section of code that you always run in production, you will find bugs but you will have less and less bugs as, um, as long as your service is running just every day and, and you fix them. So 
I would just say minimize the section where you have a lot of communication between your machines. It's, I think it's probably the best way to, to reduce uh, the potential problems. Yeah. So uh, since the earliest days of Algolia, when you were just doing your private beta, the strategy for maintaining high availability was to have a cluster of three identical machines for each user. And we've done many shows about distributed systems on Software Engineering Daily, and this replication factor of three comes up very often. And I I don't think we've actually touched on it uh, in detail why the magic number of three is is a sufficient replication factor. And for people who don't know much about distributed systems, it might be useful to explain this. Could you explain why why it is useful to replicate three times? Sure. We, we want to have two things in terms of high availability. It's mainly for us high availability of search and high availability of indexing. Search is the easiest part. You have some data, you have three machines, even if you have a replication two, one of the both one of the machines can answer a specific query. It's pretty easy. When it comes to indexing, it's more complex. You need to have a right operation which is consistent. You need to be 100% sure it will be applied exactly in the same order in all machines. So it means you need to have a vote between machines to give an ID to this specific job. And all machines will agree on the ID. In order to do a vote, you need to have a majority. If you have one machine, you cannot do anything. It's, it's just impossible. If you have two machines, you have an issue. If you have a vote of one, you cannot do anything. So you cannot operate with two machines. You cannot tolerate a failure. If you have three machines, you have a majority of two, which means that you are able to continue attribute those ID if one machine is done. So three is the minimum factor of replication to be able to have a high availability of indexing. That's why we choose this um, this number in order to uh, to have the um, at least high availability of indexing and don't uh, have a high cost of infrastructure because then you can replicate to factor five, for example, to tolerate two uh, hardware failure. But the cost is pretty expensive. It means you will replicate everything a lot more. So it's a matter of balance between cost and uh, high availability. So to put it more generally, the idea of a replication factor of three is because uh, if you have an inconsistency between your different servers, if you just had a replication factor of two and there was an inconsistency between these two servers, you would have no idea how to select between the two. You would have no idea which one is the source of truth. Yes. But since you maintain a replication factor of three, you can compare the results of the three servers, and if, if there's a vote of two to one, then you know that the third server is, the, 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 the minority is the one that's wrong, and you can just say, hey, you're wrong, update yourself. Exactly, yeah. So you mentioned something about hardware failures and needing a replication factor of five for hardware failures. Can you explain why that's the case? So for the search, it's not the case. It's pretty easy. But for the indexing, uh, a replication of factor three means that if we have a hardware failure, we can continue to index. We have two machines that agree, so we have a majority and we can index. If we have two failure, we will have only one machine remaining, but does not have any majority. If you have a factor five, the majority is three, which means you, you can tolerate two hardware failure for the indexing. 
Okay, got it. Do you use Zookeeper to maintain consistency across this replication, or how, how exactly do you do you perform the uh, the consensus protocol? So in the early days, uh, we started to use Zookeeper, and uh, we have quickly moved to our own implementation of the Raft algorithm. Um, the problem we faced with Zookeeper was the time to detect a split brain. So like two machines on one side and, and the third machine on the other side. Zookeeper is pretty good at, at, at doing this, uh, this uh, job, but it takes like a lot of time. It takes several seconds to identify this split brain situation. In our case, we want to detect this situation at the milliseconds level to act really fast and avoid any issue of the split brain. If you take some time, you can have some inconsistency because you did not detect it that there were an inconsistency of split brain. That's why we have developed our own implementation. It's mainly because, again, of performances and to be able to detect that at the milliseconds level. And... Can you handle a data center failure with your replication strategy? Actually, yes. The last data center failure was yesterday. We lose uh, one data center in Ashburn with more than 100 machines. So a, a pretty big impact, uh, impact in terms of uh, the percentage of infrastructure uh, impacted. But there were just no consequence on the service. Because this data center was only hosting one-third of the clusters, one-third of our users. So it was just uh, something we, we did not consider when indexing. And all the search queries were uh, just redirected to the two of our data centers. So, yes. Wow. Okay. So I would love more, uh, more color around that story. Uh, so... Why did the data center fail, and how did you respond to it? Did did another data center get spun up at that point, or what happened? So there is a lot of different data center issues. Most of the time, it's not like a complete outage of the data center. It's more like a, net, a connectivity issue. In this case, it was an issue with the backbone that was close to unavailable. Um, in our case, we, we always have different data centers. So we have today 36 data centers worldwide. And for example, in, uh, in uh, US East and US West, we have three different data centers in each of those regions. So if I take US uh, West in San Jose, we have three different Equinix data centers with three different network providers. And we spread the cluster of three machines across those three different data centers. So if one data center is done completely, in one milliseconds, everything is redirected to the two other data centers. And the user just don't see anything, and we can sleep. Wow, okay, very cool. Um, so what was the response process? Like, how did you... Did, did did you eventually did like did the data center come back online after a while? Yes. Like was it was there any data loss? Um, Very good question. So what we do in this case? So we flag the machines of the data center down uh, in the DNS. So we don't send any more traffic to those machines. When the machine come back to life, or the network come back to life they are automatically synchronized with, uh, with the data on the two remaining machines. So the two remaining machines keep all the data to, uh, to make sure the, the third machine will catch up. 
But we don't want to send the traffic directly to the third data center because maybe the outage was like one day, uh, one day long and the data are outdated. So before putting the machine up, we wait for the synchronization to be completely reestablished. So we send the, the traffic to the third data center only when everything is synchronized. Okay, I understand. So, uh, you know, Algolia is a fairly new product, fairly new company in the scheme of things. Um, and you've written at length about how you prepared the service for its official launch and the process of launching. And I would love to get an idea for, you know, how you transitioned from the status of being in beta to being ready for your official launch and and how you decided to proceed with that launch. Yes, it's a, it's a pretty long process to, uh, to move from our first user in, uh, in beta to, to the launch. And uh, what we have done is to identify our minimum viable product, uh, which was the API on one side that need to have a minimal um, stability. It means it needs to handle a minimum amount of API calls every day before it moves to productions, plus all the API clients that need to cover the most common programming languages, a good documentation. Documentation is key for developers, so it needs to be at least at a certain level. And the dashboard. The dashboard is the onboarding you will have when you will sign up, um, the thing uh, that will let you test uh, some queries on your indices and so on. So it was to identify the MVP on all of that. And when we reach this level, uh, we were not that good to launch it because we have just wrote a blog post publish a blog post, and send a newsletter. So it was a soft launch. <laughs> right. So uh, you've written that deployment is a big risk for high availability. And in some sense, launch is the ultimate deployment, or it is the very first deployment. What are some ways in which you minimized risk during your initial launch? Yes, when you have kind of fix all the potential hardware issue, the biggest risk is to just break everything by deploying a bug. So it's a pretty um, pretty big risk for a company like us to potentially impact our users when we deploy something. But we have the chance to have this factor three, at least minimum factor three replication, which means we can test a deploy on one third of the infrastructure and we can deploy uh, step by step, cluster after cluster. So we have an automatic process to deploy step by step and we have monitoring to check if everything is going well. So it means monitoring for crashes. If there is any crash, we, we have uh, information. So when we deploy, we know if something weird happened, but also about performances. Like if you have a big performances regression that you did not manage to catch during the, all the tests, you can detect it, it when you deploy and you can roll back with an automatic process very quickly. Rollback is as important as deploy. It needs to be really automatic. And, uh, and that's the way we deploy. Very gradually, very uh, kind of step-by-step -step, uh, in, in all our infrastructure. So let's talk about that in more granularity. If I'm a developer working at Algolia and I want to deploy new code, 
What is the process? So it depends on the risk. Um, like uh, if it's just a very small uh, bug fix that was reviewed by your peers and so on. So you, you can just think that the risk is pretty small. So we will just deploy it on one third of the infrastructure, monitors and deploy on the, the second third and the third. Um, but sometimes you have something which is pretty risky, like you have developed a new uh, format of your internal data structure, which is a pretty big change. In this case, we will deploy at a very specific um, piece. We will develop, we will deploy like on, on community cluster, on one third of the community cluster during weeks, monitor everything. Um, then move to uh, our uh, free plans, uh, deploy on our free plans, uh, and maybe one or two months later, deploy on our enterprise users. We have some deployment which are risky that take months to deploy, just because we, we are very careful and don't want to break anyone. Absolutely. Uh, and I'd love to get like a little more idea for the internal development environment at Algolia. Could you give me some insight into how software development works at Algolia, how you guys think about iteration, how you think about building, you know, the right, like how you think about prioritizing different features? Yes, it's a pretty big question. Um, so we, we use all the, the standard tools like GitHub for, for commit tracking issue and, um, and uh, with pull requests and, um, and branches to, to, to deploy specific uh, feature or, uh, or modification of the software. For the prioritization, I would say we always try to be uh, pretty flexible. We always try to think long term. When we have a feature that enter, like uh, some user ask for a specific features, um, we we try to always understand what problem are they are they looking um, for. What what do they want to solve? Then we look for the long term. Is this modification of the product something that will help us on the long term? Is it something that makes sense? Or is it more like a quick hack for a very specific uh, problem? Um, when it's a specific hack, we try to never do it. We want to have like a long-term vision of the modification we are doing to be sure we are here for the long term and, and build a product for the long term. Not like a product that will have 1,000 features in one year and that no one will be able to understand. So that's more the way we prioritize the, the modification of the product, the evolution of the product, keeping simplicity in mind. We always want to have a learning curve to be able to use the product, which is really small. The tension between long-term thinking and the short-term local maxima feature development is, is pretty interesting. And I think this is best uh, perhaps epitomized by, you know, the lean startup thinking in contrast with maybe something like, you know, how Peter Thiel talks about things in zero to one where he says, you know, like, you know, lean startup, local maxima thinking is perhaps overrated. If you just think about, you know, these exper these short-term experiments and like just optimizing for the best results in these short-term experiments is not the way to go. Um, I I'd love to get some more idea about your philosophy behind engineering with the long-term in mind and not making 
sacrifices in the long term in favor of short term results. Uh, like, like what what brought you to that that version of long term thinking? Because I think that. Uh, there are certain certain classes of developers or entrepreneurs or um, perhaps investors that would sort of scoff at the idea of long-term thinking. Uh, I think it's a question of philosophy. It's probably because of our past experiences uh, that we are thinking this way, but we apply that in all specific areas of the company. Let's just take one very concrete example. We have a lot of users that ask us if we will provide an on-premise version of our software, which definitely makes sense for the short term because there is a lot of people that uh, that are on this market, so you don't need to educate them to move to the SaaS business. But what we see as a trend and what we are really convinced, all of those guys are doing exactly the same thing. So it's a very big waste of time and money. So we see the trend to move from on-premise search engine to SaaS search engine. And we really want to be focused on this one and be the best solution on the market. If we just want to maximize the revenue on the short term, for sure we will do an on-premise version of our product. But it will be a very big lose of focus. We know our complexity is to build a great product. You cannot build two products in parallel at the same time. It's for me just impossible. It's it's two different constraints that will that will give you in two different directions. So we want to be some focused on something. So we are focused on the SaaS because we're building on the long term. It's definitely the one that will win. So we decided to do not build an on-premise version, at least um, in the coming years, uh, because we are focused on this SaaS uh, company. So that's the same principle we apply to all different areas of the product and uh, and of the company. Because I think we have seen um, too much in the past uh, the consequence of like, okay, just there is this great idea to build an on-premise version. I have this big customer that want to pay several millions for it. Just go for it. Just build it. And as an engineer, you see the consequence of that. You are doing two different products, two different release uh, cycle two different list of features, and it's just impossible to do all of that in one company. Uh, so you yeah. have two different companies, two different products. It's not what we believe is the best strategy. Yeah. Yeah, that focus is pretty important. Um, very interesting. Okay, well, I want to begin to wrap up. What's in the future of Algolia, and what are you working on now? So we are working on, on a lot of things to like continue on our trend to simplify the life of the developers. Um, for example, if you are um, if you are using an e-commerce platform, if you are using uh, a special CMS, a CRM, and want to use us, today you need to, to use one of our API clients. So one of the big um, uh, trends in, in the future will be to provide as an open source uh, integration more high-level API clients like um, something that helps you to integrate Algolia in uh, Zendesk instead of just helping you to integrate Algolia in uh, in Java. So it's more providing more tools to help developers to build something um, quickly and, uh, and a big differentiator. Uh, we see the market not just as as a, um, 
like as a technology point of view, but more as a service. And there is a lot of special area in the search that are not yet correctly solved. So our goal will be to tackle all of those specific challenges uh, in terms of problem to solve in the coming years. And, and there is a lot. Totally. Yeah, we've done we've done all these shows recently where it seems like integrations are becoming this really interesting uh, area of uh, product development and monetization. I mean, you see like Slack and Gitter having integrate points of integration as being yes. really defining characteristics. You know, things like Trello and Asana, and then um, there's of course um, you know services like you know like Segment that does like integration for analytics. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting because you have all these, all these SaaS products, you know, the average technology company is buying more and more SaaS products and it, you know, you want these products to work really well together. And it seems like we're moving towards this harmonious area where the SaaS products do actually work together and they do make strong efforts to integrate with each other. Yes, definitely. And it's an opportunity to create an ecosystem. Today, we see our first company that build some integration and, and sell those integration on top of our platform. So it means you can create opportunity for other companies to build a business on top of uh, an API. Like some analytics company are building some dashboard on top of Stripe. So it's exactly the same trend to see more... Uh, an opportunity to use a, a service to build more added value in a specific vertical. We cannot build all vertical enough. We are there to build the good platforms, the good uh, tools to let developers build added value on top of us. It's quite interesting. Okay, well, Julian, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a really interesting conversation. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Algolia, and I want to thank you guys again for sponsoring our show. Thank you. Thank you.